This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Heading into spring, I've been spending a lot of time pondering, analyzing, and debating something extremely important to men, and even many women, and that's whether a new driver would improve my golf game. I would say I'm somewhere between embarrassing and appalling at golf, but man, do I love it. And all my buddies show up with these epic flash, big Maverick birther drivers, and I can't help but feel like they've got this massive advantage on me and my persimmons. It's Ryan, and at our Faith and Family Mortgage Team, we're proud to have a pretty special advantage ourselves, and one that can be a big deal for you. Our team is an arm of a bigger company who is a direct lender, which means our company uses its own money and makes its own decisions within its own walls. There's no middleman, and this advantage often allows us to get you a better rate, saving monthly and lifelong money on a refinance or new home purchase. We're much better at mortgages than I am at golf. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. As Jesus walked the Emmaus Road, he showed his companions how all of Scripture foretold his coming. Yet so often today, we're not quite sure how to talk about Jesus in the Old Testament. Where can we find him there? How do you know what applies to Jesus? And how do you interpret some of the strange prophetic language? Well, you'll get answers and clarity when you join us next for The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to Moody Radio's one-hour flyover of the Middle East. Our pilot, as we say, is Dr. Charlie Dyer, who literally has flown to Israel more than 100 times. Uh, Not in the pilot seat, though. Sitting in the co-pilot's chair, I'm John Geiger. Nice to welcome listeners aboard today's flight, Charlie. Oh, John, indeed it is. And it's fun being with you again as well. Well, I'm intrigued that, uh, and disturbed, frankly, that we're seeing riots in Jerusalem, rockets being fired into Israel from Gaza. After more than a year of calm, it appears like the region is once again heating up. What's causing this sudden flare-up in violence, and, and could it lead to a more serious confrontation between Israel and the Palestinians? It is a situation uh, where the news headlines especially don't tell the whole story. Uh, there are at least four reasons for the recent flare-up in violence. Uh, the first is the easing of restrictions following the pandemic. You know, For the last year, there have been lockdowns and enforced restrictions on movement, and that kept large crowds off the street. But that also increased the level of tension, you know, forced unemployment, family pressures, all those issues have built up. And part of what we're seeing is a release of that pent-up frustration. Mm-hmm. Now, add to that the fact that the Muslims are now celebrating the month of Ramadan. This is the month when they're not allowed to eat or drink during the day, and that can increase anyone's level of irritability. And then they make up for it by staying up late at night, reducing the amount of sleep they get. Uh, the religious fervor combined with the fasting and the lack of sleep Well, that also creates an explosive combination. The third factor, though, is a change in U.S. policy toward the Palestinians that has emboldened them uh, to become more confrontational with Israel. They feel the change in administration has given them the freedom to be more aggressive, Hmm. knowing our government will pressure Israel into not responding as forcefully. And finally, uh, the Palestinian elections scheduled for May and July are pressuring the different parties to try and outdo one another in showing that they're the champions of the Palestinian cause. 
politicians running for election say and do whatever it takes to get elected. And in this case, they're whipping up the crowds with their rhetoric. Hmm. Now, the danger in all this, of course, John, is the reality that the violence could spiral out of control and force Israel to respond more aggressively. An errant rocket hitting a home along the border with Gaza and killing someone would be the kind of event that would force Israel to respond. Ramadan ends the evening of May 12, and the Palestinian legislative elections, if they're not canceled, are scheduled for May 22. Now, all that to say, in about three weeks, two of the major tension points will have passed, and hopefully the violence can be kept at a low level until then. If it can, uh, this story will once again fade into the background, at least temporarily. Reports surfaced this week suggesting Russia, Turkey, and Iran are working together to create problems for Israel and the West. What are the common elements that keep drawing these three countries together? Uh, Well, one common element drawing them together is a shared desire to replace the West's influence in the Middle East. Now, that doesn't mean that they're completely united. Each of these countries want to replace the West's influence in the region, but each of them also wants to be that replacement. Russia has announced its warships will accompany Syrian-bound oil shipments from Iran. Uh, This benefits Iran by keeping its ships free from attack, but it also helps cement Russia's role as Syria's benefactor. Turkey denounced President Biden's statement where he called the 1915 mass deportation and murder of a million and a half Armenians genocide. By the way, a personal comment, I think that was a great decision on President Biden's part. Turkey suggested they might leave NATO close the U.S. bases there, sanction the U.S., and align more closely with Russia and Iran. Now, that's similar to past threats made by Russia and Iran in response to any criticism from the West. Uh, The hope of all of them is to cower the West into silence by threatening to harm our economic interests if we dare to criticize them. Now, what's interesting is that their perception of the West as a threat might be the common element drawing them together, but They're not above putting their own interests ahead of their own allies. Uh, In that leaked audio recording this past week, Iran's foreign minister accused Russia of working with Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps to try to scuttle the nuclear deal and demolish efforts at reaching agreement with the West. So Russia's been siding with the hardliners in Iran against other elements in its government. Of the three nations, it appears as if Russia is the main driving force, actively working to pull the other two into its sphere of influence. Now, John, those of us who study Bible prophecy see an eerie foreshadowing of an alliance of nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Hmm. and that suggests God's overarching plan for the future could also be a factor drawing these nations closer together. If you just joined us, you're listening to The Land and the Book. It's a one-hour broadcast that centers around the Middle East. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a noted Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler, and I'm John Geiger. A study done in the Netherlands claims to be able to determine the number of scribes who penned some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're using artificial intelligence to examine the handwriting on the scrolls. Charlie, how accurate are their results, and does the project have any practical application for studying these scrolls? Well, the study used artificial intelligence to identify multiple copyists based on the way they wrote the Hebrew letter Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, in the Dead Sea Scroll of the book of Isaiah. Now, they chose that scroll and that particular letter because the scroll is complete. It's a long scroll. And because the letter Aleph occurs in that scroll over 5,000 times. 
The program they developed looked at almost microscopic differences in the letters throughout the 54 columns of text in that manuscript. They concluded that there's clear evidence of two separate copyists and that the transition occurred halfway through the manuscript just after the 27th column. Now, in terms of practical value, while this might validate the use of artificial intelligence to spot handwriting differences, it's not really a breakthrough in the study of the content of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember, this isn't the scroll that Isaiah wrote. This is a scroll that was copied from a copy of the scroll Isaiah wrote. So all they're looking at is a copy of the original. Now, what I did find amazing, though, is that anyone without a detailed knowledge of Hebrew or artificial intelligence could come to almost the same conclusion in a fraction of the time. The entire scroll is available digitally online. If someone takes the time, they can go down through each column and look for copyist errors, Hmm. places where the scribe missed a word but then inserted it just above the line, or places where the copyist skipped an entire line but then had to go back and carefully write it in in the space between the lines. Well, what you discover is the first 27 columns are remarkably clean. The scribe doing the copying made very few mistakes that needed to be corrected. In contrast, the last 27 columns have a number of corrections that had to be made. Individual words were missed and added above the line. Entire lines were missed and needed to be added. And in a few places, even needed to be inserted vertically in the margin. Now, the accuracy of the initial copying dropped off rather dramatically after column 27. So it looks like a a real careful scribe copied the first half, and then a less careful scribe took (laughs) over midway through. Uh, Now, here's one other observation. That second copyist might have made more mistakes while writing, but those additions show that a system was in place to check his work. The errors were discovered and corrected. So the takeaway for me is this is a reminder that the Word of God was carefully preserved, even when a less precise assistant scribe came on duty. Well, a groundbreaking treatment developed by an Israeli team might offer a cure for multiple myeloma, a type of blood cancer. Tell us about this latest treatment from Amazing Israel, Charlie. Well, for those who might not know, multiple myeloma is a type of cancer that targets white blood cells that produce antibodies. Currently, the disease is treatable but not curable. The survival rate's about 50% at five years after diagnosis, and the current treatment's based on chemotherapy, which can cause other problems. Uh, the team from bar University and Hadassah University Medical Center developed an alternative treatment that reprograms the patient's own blood cells to allow them to recognize cancerous cells. A molecule is added to the patient's cells using a modified virus, and the patient's own immune system then starts fighting the cancer. Once injected, the body's T-cells keep multiplying and working by themselves. Uh, In experiments on mice, the treatment was able to cure 80% to 100% of those mice with cancer. The treatment is currently in a phase one clinical trial in Israel and is already showing positive results. Hopefully, this new treatment coming out of amazing Israel will become part of a doctor's arsenal for curing multiple myeloma. Thanks, Charlie. Hey, if you're not uh, subscribed to our podcast, you ought to check it out. It's available at thelandandthebook.org. And did I mention we love getting email from you? Yeah, you can email us any old time at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie, you're going to step away for a moment as we join Michael Rydelnik for a fascinating conversation about finding Jesus in the Old Testament. But we're looking forward to your devotional taking us to Amos chapter 2. 
Prepare to meet your God. Sounds serious, but there are great insights ahead. You don't want to miss it or anything on today's edition of The Land and the Book. As Jesus walked the Emmaus Road, he showed his companions how the whole of Scripture foretold his coming. Yet so often today, we're not really sure how to talk about Jesus in the Old Testament. Is he really there? How do you know what applies to Jesus and what doesn't? And how do you interpret some of the strange prophetic language? Well, we're about to get some answers, some clarity. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And just before we talk about messianic prophecy, let's talk about sharing Messiah. Check this out. Well, if you're like me, you sometimes fall into the trap of doing, doing, doing in your efforts, whatever it might be, in reaching out to friends with the good news of Messiah. But sometimes that doing needs to be focused on praying. Justin Crone is with Chosen People Ministries and has more. Well, I've really learned over the years uh, that God is the one who changes people's hearts, isn't he? I mean, it's not us. As as much as we want to, as Mm -hmm. much as we want to control the situation or really to control the outcome, it's God who is the one who plows the ground. We're the ones who cast the seeds. God plows the ground of one's heart. The hard work. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. And we really need to be seriously invested in prayer for people. Uh, We need to ask God to move in people's hearts. Mm -hmm. I mean, it requires so much patience on our part, doesn't it, Mm -hmm. when when we go that approach? But I am committed that it's really the best and probably the only way to go. Uh, There is no such thing as microwave evangelism, (laughs) you know. So let's be grateful for the seeds that get planted. Mm -hmm. And let's not get discouraged if there's no tangible sign of fruit on our timeline. We just need to continue to love people where they're at and take other really well-prayed-over risks in people's lives when the time is right. Justin Crone is with Chosen People Ministries, and you're listening to The Land and the Book. Dr. Michael Rydelnik is professor of Jewish studies at the Moody Bible Institute. If you have read the Moody Bible Commentary, and if you haven't, Maybe shame on you. Maybe not. (laughs) You've certainly read Michael's work. We're talking today, though, about the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, studies and expositions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to having. Thank you for making the trip into the studio, Michael. I am so glad to be here with you. And uh, boy, I'm glad this book is done also. I bet you are. (laughs) You know, just zoom out for a moment. When we talk about the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, uh, there are a lot of lot of voices, a lot of lot of minds at work to bring. Yeah, this together. you know, uh, I had this idea of wanting to have a book that gathers together mm-hmm. a really a, a wide and accurate picture of what the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, says about the coming Messiah, uh, both his first coming and his second coming. Uh, then I, I Moody approved it, but I went ahead and I got my old. Can I call him old? My old professor. Uh, I was his graduate assistant when I was in graduate school, Edwin Bloom, who is a great scholar, couple of doctorates, genius. And you may know him. He was the general editor who was in charge of the Holman CSB translation hmm. and also the study Bible that came with it. 
he's not a household name, but he's one of the great scholars yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there is. And so I said, you know, would you join me in doing this? And I was sort of the lead editor, to be truthful about it. But I said, this is just a chance for us to exchange roles where we used to work together and I was his assistant. Now we work together equally on this, yeah. uh, but I brought him in, you know. But then what we did is we gathered, I think, 45, 46 scholars yeah. from across the world to join us in writing this book. I think that's significant because all of these people coming together under one banner, all of them pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, I'm guessing there are listeners, Michael, who say, really, really? Is it that clear that Jesus in the, is in the Old Testament? Let's just barge on in and, yeah. and, and jump to a passage. Well, where, I do want to say something, yeah. though. I don't think our listeners will say that. I think most people are aware that the Old Testament predicts sure. the Messiah. They're not sure where, but they know it does. I think the real issue is that there's been a movement among believing scholarship to say, well, it doesn't really predict him. Yeah. Maybe it's secretly hidden. The, the writers didn't know, but the Holy Spirit knew. It's kind of mysterious. Mm-hmm. And No, the, the Bible actually, and that's what we wanted to accomplish with this book, is that the Bible actually foretold the coming Messiah. And Jesus said to his disciples, I met on the road to Emmaus, that only the foolish, he called them, uh, you're so foolish and slow of heart to believe mm. all that the prophets have written. So he thought it was foolish not to see the Messiah in the Old Testament, and and it lacked trust in God not to see it. And okay. so that's why we wanted to show where it was in the text. Okay, so let's go to this scene. Yeah. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with these two, and of course the scripture says, the account, that he he opened up and began to show them how Messiah you know, was to come. Beginning, you know, in the Old Testament, obviously, that's what they had. So your best guess, what are two or three passages Jesus might have referenced? We're not trying to get extra biblical here and too crazy, but what might he have referenced? There's so many. I can't imagine uh, which ones, and I'm certainly no expert in knowing what the mind of Jesus was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, caution, uh, caution. Yeah, I just, uh, but I do think that there are passages, for example, he would have cited passages from the Pentateuch, from the Torah, uh, from the law of Moses. So, for example, Genesis 49, the one to whom it belongs uh, had come. Uh, Some versions say Shiloh, but it says the scepter won't depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the one to whom it belongs, the, the rightful authority, came. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so it's not just Israel that should be obey him, but all nations will obey him. So he would come from the tribe of Judah. He would be the king over Israel and all nations will obey him. I think that would be one that he would have cited. You know, you go even to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve being kicked out. Even there we see... Yeah, right in the in the midst of the... One of the things you see in uh, Genesis over, there's salvation in the midst mm-hmm. of judgment. You know, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel, and then God gives him that when he's disciplining him, correcting him, punishing him, he gives him the mark of Cain, and uh, God's going to judge the world, and he then saves Noah through the flood and his family, Noah and his family. And in the same way, right in the midst of that curse on the serpent, part of the curse is a blessing for us Mm -hmm. because it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he, the seed of the woman, will crush you on the head and you will crush him on the heel. And some people say, well, I actually heard someone object to me about that being messianic. 
It said, well, that would mean that the Messiah, if, if it, the symbol of that power behind the serpent is Satan, obviously, but the serpent represents that symbol or symbolic of Satan, and uh, he has a, a deadly bite. He's a nachash, a Hebrew word for serpent, a deadly serpent. And so if he attacks the seed of the woman on the hill, that means the Messiah would die. That can't be messianic. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking... Of course, that's what's messianic. The Messiah dies and in so doing crushes the head of the serpent. Mm. It's the defeat of the serpent through his death. That's what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 14 uh, and 15. So uh, the the point of it is that, yes, there is hope right there in the midst of the judgment of the enemy. The promise is made that he will, in his death, he will defeat the enemy. Dr. Michael Rydelnik is professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute. We're looking at the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. You know, when you look at, uh, even again in the Garden of Eden, how, how God has to kill animals to create a covering for Adam and Eve. So here we see uh, God covering them, and we see blood being shed. We see it uh, as Abraham is offering his son Isaac. Take us to that scene. Yes, uh, there's that promise where Abraham, of course, there's the book of Hebrews tells us that that is a picture, a pattern of what God would do, just as Abraham offered his son willingly. Now, he ultimately doesn't really offer him, but he was willing. And in the same way, God actually sent forth his son and offered him for us as a sacrifice, obviously raised him from the dead. But what I think is most interesting is right there in that passage in Genesis 22, we we discuss this in the book, Uh, wonderful author Desmond Alexander writes about this. It talks there in verse 17b, 2217b and 18, it talks about the seed of Abraham is going to one day in your seed will all nations mm. of the earth be blessed. Wow. So it, it promises Abraham many seeds in verses 16 and 17, but then there would be one particular seed that would come from Abraham, one offspring that would bless the whole world. You know, when you flip through the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, I personally was amazed as you go through the table of contents, how many, many books of the Old Testament are just dripping with this stuff. Yes. I mean, it's not like, you know, there are two or three references. There's one and a couple in the Psalms, of course. Everybody well, that's knows what people want to say, but it's not like that. It's everywhere. Yeah, and it, it's in the DNA. Yeah. Of, of not just, it's not just this proof text here and that proof. It's in the very DNA, and that's what we were trying to show. Uh, it was the point, one of the things that the book that, we have an article in here by John Salhammer that he had written before his, uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, sadly, and uh, we dedicated the book to him. Mm-hmm. He was my professor, and he was Ed Bloom's student, mm-hmm. and and he was a friend to both of us. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, he was this great Old Testament scholar that really emphasized messianism. And one of the things that he said is one of the very chief reasons that books were made part of the Hebrew Bible was they had an intrinsic messianic message. Hmm. That was one of the key factors to recognize the inspiration of God in those books. One of the reactions I had, again, after flipping through the book, was a sense of pain at the, uh, I guess not intentional, almost divorcing or lessening of our focus on the Old Testament in so many churches and so much Mm -hmm. of the evangelical world today. It's an enormous discrediting, a disrespect for Christ as Messiah, it seems yeah. to me. Yeah, it's so important. You know, uh, there I've even heard people say, oh, you know, we should we disconnect from the Old Testament, unhitch from the Old Testament? And no, not only <laughs> yeah. does it reveal Messiah, it's what Paul was talking about when he says all Scripture is inspired, and he says it's profitable for mm-hmm. us. 
Now, now, certainly we're not saying that we're living on, under the law of Moses in the same sense that Israel was as its constitution, but the principles and lessons and the wisdom of even those commandments should guide us. I'll, one of my examples is Sabbath. Do you have to have worship on Saturday now? No, I don't think so. There's a great deal of freedom in the New Testament. But the idea that we should take a Sabbath, mm-hmm. that we need a day for spiritual renewal and physical rest, of course we get that right from the Old Testament. Yes. And that is the wisdom of the law. And so, yes, we dare not unhitch from the Old Testament. We desperately need it. Take us to a favorite of yours, a favorite revelation of Messiah in the Old Testament. Uh, what's your what's Well, your the, the most important one, the one that convinced me ultimately to become a follower of Jesus is Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, the suffering servant. Now, we, we actually cover it quite in depth in the book, the suffering servant passages from Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 49, 50, uh, then Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, and then also uh, Isaiah 61, We've got some terrific articles about that, but to me, Isaiah 53 or 52, 13 through 53, 12, that shows that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people. Very often my Jewish family, my friends will say to me, well, if Jesus really were the Messiah, then why was he rejected? And I always say, if he were accepted, it would have been proof positive that he's not the Messiah because Isaiah predicted Mm -hmm. he would be rejected by his own people. Also, very important in that it has a substitutionary death. It actually uses one of the words for sacrifice about the Messiah's death in that passage. Uh, one of the words from the book of Leviticus, it's an asham, a guilt offering, mm-hmm. that, that he renders his life as a guilt offering. And so that's another very important aspect that all we like sheep went astray. Each of us turned to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the passage. It's saying that we failed, but he succeeded. We sinned, and he became the offering for our sin. And then ultimately, it has the full gospel in there because it has the resurrection. It says in that passage that he will see his seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll see the light of life, uh, meaning he'll see followers mm. after his rejection. That's what seed is used there in the figurative sense. He will prolong his days. Well, after he dies, prolong his days. That means he'll live again. Mm -hmm. And then it's interesting that it says he will see, in some of the Masoretic text, it says he will see, but it doesn't say what he'll see. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the most ancient text of Isaiah that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says he shall see the light. After the darkness of death, he'll see the light. In the Mm -hmm. NIV, they translated, he shall see the light of life. And so it has that Messiah, we sinned, he died as a substitutionary sacrifice for us, and then he's raised again, and uh, then we can follow him. That's all in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. It is the most important, most significant messianic passage there is. That's Dr. Michael Rydelnik, professor of Jewish studies at the Moody Bible Institute. We're talking about the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. My reaction was, I think it makes you fall in love with Uh, Jesus all over again. Yeah, yeah. When we see what he was talking about when he said the law and the prophets and the Psalms all bear witness of him, uh, you say, yes, 
it makes us love the, the Hebrew Bible, I think, more and more, but also mostly what it reveals about him shows him to be our redeemer. And one day we'll return and set up a righteous kingdom. How could we not love and, and, and love him more for that? Dr. Michael Rydelnik, thanks for the conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Questions and answers are next with Charlie Dyer here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for carving out time to be with us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. Boy, this is a a fast-paced segment we're about to launch into here. It's questions, yours, questions about Israel, the Middle East, prophecy, and they're always welcome on the broadcast. We'll begin with Joanne's. She says, I listen to you mostly online, but sometimes catch you live on Moody Radio Chicago. Love every part of your broadcast. Hey, thanks, Joanne. Her question about Luke 17. She says, Jesus is describing his return like the days of Noah. And uh, in verses 34 through 37, it talks about two lying in bed. One is taken, the other left. One translation that she read says, one will suddenly be swept away while the other will be left alive. Uh, The study notes going on to say that the ones being swept away are taken to judgment. But that seems contrary to the rapture. And then she says she's not convinced at all of a pre-trib rapture. Your thoughts? Yeah, and I would say uh, when you read Luke 17 and and then later in that book, Luke 21, and if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 24, they all are the same description of what Jesus is saying. Uh, He's talking about events that are leading up to his second coming. Uh, In fact, uh, in those passages, it'll then talk about the coming of the Son of Man uh, as he returns to earth in a cloud with power and great glory. And that's the second coming. That's different than the rapture uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, which talks about us being caught away to heaven. Uh, And it's in this context that Jesus mentions those being taken away. And he really is picturing people being taken away in judgment. In the flood, he mentions the flood at that time, as well as women being taken away who are grinding grain. Now, in the immediate context, they are being taken away in judgment while those who remain are allowed to enter the kingdom. And really, Jesus describes how this is going to take place in Matthew 25, where he pictures the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Everyone is gathered before him. The unbelievers are taken away. The believers are allowed to remain and enter into the kingdom. And, And that's what he's picturing there in Luke 17 and Luke 21. Thank you, Charlie. In the parable of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom in Matthew 25, one listener wants to know, do you think the oil represents the Holy Spirit? The listener goes on to say, those with oil have made sure of their faith and are sealed with the Holy Spirit, but the five foolish virgins did not make sure of their faith and had no oil when the bridegroom came. Therefore, Jesus says, I never knew you. What do you think? Yeah, I don't believe the olive oil represents the Holy Spirit in that parable. In fact, in a parable, the key is to always remember what's the main point. And I see Jesus using that parables, in fact, a number of them in that context, that all have the same basic point. In the parable of the ten virgins, he's pointing to uh, Jesus' judgment on Jews who will be alive when he returns. Some will be ready and watching, others will not. Those who are ready go in with the bridegroom, Jesus, into the wedding banquet, which is a symbol of the millennial kingdom. Those who aren't ready aren't allowed in. So I don't see any deep spiritual significance to the oil since the main point of the story is given in verse 13. Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So the emphasis was on those alive at the time of his return and how they need to be ready for his coming. The oil is just part of the story, illustrating how some were ready and others were not. We're looking at questions that have come into our email inbox, the land and the book at moody.edu. All right, here's one from Lynn, a former traveler, Charlie. She was with us in Israel. She says, we just finished the book of Esther in a Bible study. And the ladies asked, 
why the Jews didn't plunder the Persians or anyone else in the empire on the 13th day of Adar. There may be no clear answer, but I promised I would ask. Yeah, we're not given a specific answer, but it is interesting in that the text goes out of its way three times to say they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, here's one possible explanation. Uh, it's one of the backstories to that conflict in Esther between Mordecai and Haman, uh, and it's actually the larger conflict between Israel and the Amalekites. I don't think it's an accident in the book. We're told that Mordecai was a Benjamite and that Haman was the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Well, Agag was the king of the Amalekites in King Saul, who happened to be a Benjamite, uh, in King Saul's day. Uh, Back in 1 Samuel 15, God had commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites, including the cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys, all that. But Saul disobeyed. He kept the best of the stuff as spoil, and it cost him his throne. And I wonder if the idea in Esther is that under Mordecai, the Jews are now accomplishing what Saul failed to do, uh, bring God's judgment on these enemies without regard to any personal gain or reward. Mordecai completed what Saul failed to accomplish, and he's honored by being made second only to Xerxes in the kingdom. Now, I can't push that too far, but I believe the connection between a leader from the tribe of Benjamin and the descendant of Agag the Amalekite is at least a strong hint that this is intentional and not taking spoil from the victory sets Mordecai apart from King Saul in a very good way. Wow, that's fascinating. Never never saw that. Thanks, Charlie. Question from Ava. Why are the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke different? Yeah, Matthew traces the, the legal genealogy of Jesus through Joseph back to David. Now, it looks kind of confusing in English, but in Greek, Matthew makes it very clear that the fellow named Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, now Matthew uses a feminine form there to let us know he's actually talking about Mary, of whom Mary was born Jesus, who's called the Christ. Uh, Then what he does is he traces the human line from David to Jesus through the men until he gets to Joseph. Then he switches to let us know Joseph's married to Mary. She's the one giving birth to Jesus. But why does he do that? Well, when you trace that line back, there was a curse on uh, one son in that line. In Jeremiah 22, God placed a curse on Jehoiachin, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Well, Joseph descended from Jehoiachin. Uh, His other name there was Jeconiah, uh, but that means if Jesus had been physically born to Joseph, he would have been cursed and not able to take the throne. Luke's genealogy traces the actual physical genealogy of Jesus through his mother Mary, back to King David. If you trace the genealogies carefully, uh, in Matthew's genealogy, it goes through Solomon and through Jeconiah or Jehoiachin. In Luke's genealogy, it traces uh, through another son of David's named Nathan. Uh, So really, by not having Jesus' actual physical connection to David come through Joseph, Uh, just a legal one, but having him come through Mary bypasses that curse placed on the descendants of Jehoiachin. So Jesus was legally qualified and uh, actually qualified to be Messiah by avoiding that curse. Given the prevalent issue of the coronavirus, Gary shares this concern. It is my understanding, he says, that the vaccine has fetal tissue from aborted babies as part of the serum. My question is, where do you stand on this vaccine and potentially receiving it? Yeah, and I'll start by saying, I've been vaccinated, and I'm very glad I have been, because that'll allow me to get to Israel hopefully sooner. Now, here's what I need to say also. I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a scientist. So I I do rely on others with expertise in those fields. Uh, But as I understand it, there's two questions that need to be answered. 
Did those who developed the vaccine use tissue from aborted babies during the development process? And is the actual vaccine itself produced using tissue from aborted babies? Now, from what I've been able to research, it does look like they used tissue from aborted babies during the testing phase of the process. That is, they tested the vaccine on cells that had originally come from babies who were aborted at some point in the past. Uh, So the answer to my first question is, yeah, they did. Now, the second question, though, has a slightly different answer. Based on what I've been able to read, I think the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for sure, the ones being used mainly here in the States, do not use tissue from aborted babies in the actual production of the vaccine itself. They don't have fetal tissue from aborted babies as part of the serum. So the larger moral question as I see it is, how are we as believers to live godly lives in a morally fallen world? I think in this case, we look and say, okay, the vaccine we're taking does not directly connect or use aborted baby tissue. And as believers, it's good for us to follow what the government recommends as long as it doesn't directly violate our beliefs. It's a complex issue. We need to think through the matter carefully, uh, but we need to then be able to stand before the Lord with a clear conscience. Donna writes us from Lauderdale Lakes, Florida. She says, I heard you recently refer to President Trump's deal of the century and the peace agreements that have come out of it. In general, it seems good to negotiate peace, but then I start wondering about scriptures like Exodus 34, verses 12 and 15, or Deuteronomy 7, verse 2, that warn the Israelites to not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And I wonder if this peace deal is wrong and if we are wrong for being a part of it. What do you think? Yeah, I don't believe former President Trump's deal is wrong. And I'll say that for two reasons. First, the commands in Exodus and Deuteronomy were at a very specific time in Israel's history. And then later in the book of Judges, they seem to be rescinded. Uh, That is, God said, if you make a covenant with them, they're going to be a snare to you. Later in Judges, an angel of the Lord appears and says, now, therefore, I'll tell you, I will not drive them out before you. There'll be thorns in your side. So once they disobeyed God's original command, he revoked his earlier promise to drive out the inhabitants. My second reason for not seeing the deal of the century as disobeying God's command is that even in the future millennial kingdom, God gives provision for non-Israelites to live in the land. In Ezekiel 47, God reaffirms the land boundaries for Israel, and then he says, you're to distribute this land among yourselves, according to the tribes of Israel, and you're to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the aliens who have settled among you and who have children. You're to consider them as native-born Israelites among you. They're to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In other words, it appears that God's ultimate plan for the land includes allotting non-Israelites an inheritance there. Now, that refers to the millennial kingdom, not to today, but I see a principle there that suggests God will allow others to dwell in the land. And that's a look at questions that have come into our inbox. If you didn't hear yours, maybe it's coming next week, or maybe you didn't even mail it. You can do that anytime. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. If you have not yet told a friend about our podcast, would you do that today? Let them know where they can listen to The Land and the Book. Hey, Charlie Dyer's devotional is next, right here. Warnings. Life is full of them. Sometimes we heed them, sometimes we do not. Hi, this is The Land and the Book, and I'm John Gager. Warnings have everything to do with Charlie Dyer's devotional. We'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. First, though, it's always refreshing to sit down and listen to what somebody has experienced in the Holy Land, how it shapes the way they think now, the way they read the Scriptures, and 
Well, with that said, let's check out this Holy Land experience. Hi, I'm Jennifer, and this is my Holy Land experience. And um, the part that stands out for me is um, we went to see the Judean wilderness, which is totally not what I expected. Um, just the rough terrain and the hills. And and then we went to um, En Gedi. And then Charlie had mentioned that that might be where um, Naomi and Ruth made their trek up and over and then had to go clear across the wilderness to Jerusalem. And I just thought how overwhelming that is and had no idea what they faced. And it gave me such an appreciation for what they went through, but also... You know, they had those obstacles and that adversity, but they looked to God and He brought them through. And um, it's just was such a lesson to me. Like, if they can face that, you know, there's nothing I can't face with God. There's a phrase that's been captured in novels and movies: "Prepare to meet your God." And every time I hear it or see it, Charlie, it, it almost sends shivers down my spine. It does. It's usually what you picture on an old sign on a on a dangerous uh, corner in a small road, right? You know, with a cliff on one side, uh, and yet the words come right from the prophet Amos. What do you got for us in your devotional today? Oh man, we're going to talk about the, why Amos said those words and what they mean. Uh, but I want to start by actually taking us a slight different direction, and all that's right. Fiddler on the Roof. I, you know, one of my I'm favorite sure we, musicals of all isn't time. It, I I love Fiddler on the Roof myself. You know, it, it, it is one of the favorites. The songs are amazing. Mm. The storyline is so compelling. Uh, do you remember when Tevia? You know, he has to convince his wife that uh, their daughter should marry the tailor, Model Comzoil, uh, rather than the butcher, to whom they've just announced his engagement. Tevia pretends to have a nightmare in which the butcher's first wife appears to him from beyond the grave, and she shrieks at him, If Tevia marries Laser Wolf, I pity them both. She'd live with him three weeks, and when three weeks are up, I'll come to her by night. I'll take her by the throat, and and, and that's when Tevia gets his wife to call off the wedding. Three weeks, a short time of happiness to be followed by sudden judgment. Somewhat surprisingly, the prophet Amos shared a very similar message with the people of Israel, and his wasn't some made-up story. Last week, we followed Amos the prophet as God called him from his flock and figs to be God's spokesman to Israel. Uh, But perhaps you wondered at the time, why Amos? Surely God could have called on his professional religious people to deliver the message. After all, the land of Judah had many prophets and priests, so why call a layman, a businessman, for this difficult job? I believe there are at least two reasons God selected Amos. First, time was short. God needed a bottom-line kind of guy because the nation was fast approaching the proverbial brick wall. And second, Amos was a man of action, a dirt-under-the-fingernails kind of guy who could speak bluntly to the issues that needed to be addressed. Let me show you what I mean. In the very first verse of the book, Amos tells us he delivered his message two years before the earthquake. We pass over statements like that, but we shouldn't. Amos tells us he started giving a warning two years before an earthquake shook the land of Israel. How severe was this quake? Over two centuries after the event, it was still being used as a historical marker to illustrate panic and destruction. The prophet Zechariah described a still future time when the people of Jerusalem will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. 
Amos prophesied in the days of Uzziah, and this is the earthquake that shook the land two years after his warning. Archaeologists have found evidence of this quake from Hatzor in the north all the way south to Lachish. Their best guess is that it measured 8.2 on today's Richter scale and is likely the strongest earthquake to have occurred in the land of Israel in the last 4,000 years. Near the end of his book, Amos actually pictures God showing up at the false religious shrine in Bethel to begin his judgment with this earthquake. Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Now, a capital is the topmost segment of a support column that bears the weight of the roof beams. Using poetic language, Amos pictures the earthquake as a time when God literally shook the support columns, causing the capitals to topple over and bringing the entire roof down with it, crushing anyone unfortunate enough to be inside at the time. God was about to send an unprecedented calamity on the kingdom of Israel, but before it happened, he sent a prophet to warn the people. As a shepherd, Amos understood the need to be prepared. Like David before him, Amos had to guard his sheep from sudden attack in the wilderness. It's no accident that in the second verse of the book, Amos pictures God roaring like a lion, preparing to pounce on the flock. Just as he had watched over his flocks and herds to guard them from attack, so now Amos boldly stands to warn the flock of Israel that danger is lurking nearby and about to pounce. Much like the Apostle Paul seven centuries later, Amos boldly announced to these people that God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap, and harvest time was close at hand. Now, the second reason God chose Amos is that he was a man of action. He wasn't afraid to say what was on his mind. Today, we would say he wasn't politically correct. For example, he called the well-fed women living in the capital of Samaria cows of Bashan. Not just cows, but cows that lived in the fertile areas of Bashan, which received abundant rainfall and that produced thick grass for grazing. The cows of Bashan were the fat, well-fed cows of Israel, and that's the picture Amos paints of the powerful women of Samaria. So tell us how you really feel, Amos. He then turns to the men of Israel who were faithfully bringing their sacrifices and offerings and exposes their hypocrisy. Like the proverbial show dog, they looked good, but they couldn't hunt. Over and over, Amos highlights their failure to connect with God, even though they pretended to be so religious. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Amos finally warns them, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, because God was on his way and the impact was going to be catastrophic. Well, about now, we sense a bit of discomfort in this journey with Amos. We like stories with a happy ending, and this one ends in tragedy. The earthquake did come, and it devastated the land. But it was followed by a string of other disasters that climaxed in the invasion and destruction of the entire kingdom by the nation of Assyria. In less than one generation, the northern kingdom of Israel went from prosperity and power to utter defeat and destruction. A generation that thought it controlled its own destiny found out that the God of the universe was ultimately in control and would not be mocked. And perhaps that's why the book of Amos is so hauntingly appropriate for our day and age. We have so much materially, yet give God so little credit. We pursue spirituality, but demand that it be separated from biblical absolutes. We say we want God, but we want him on our terms, not his. We're confident about what the future holds, but that confidence isn't grounded in what God has said about the future. 
Our world today desperately needs men and women who will boldly stand, as Amos did in the past, and proclaim God's word of truth. Our country is heading the wrong direction morally and spiritually, and there will be consequences. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Jesus calls on us to be salt and light in a decaying, dark world, and Amos reminds us that we don't need to be in professional ministry to follow that call. God is looking for men and women who are willing to stand up and speak up for him. Today might just be the day God wants you to be his Amos. You know, Charlie, I'm sitting here listening to you share this devotional, and I'm struck by the fact that uh, a lot of us don't feel like we have the courage. And a lot of us have no idea what impact we could have. Think of the life of Amos. Here's a guy who wasn't particularly important, quote unquote, in his day, but what a mark he left. And by transference, what a mark you and I can leave as we speak up for God today. You can hear the program again in its entirety at thelandandthebook.org. Our website that features a link to our Facebook page, giving you an up-to-the-minute picture of what's really happening in the Middle East. Again, check out the Facebook page when you head first to thelandandthebook.org and click on the Facebook icon. Our team here at The Land of the Book features Dan Anderson, our producer, Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Gager. See you back next week for more of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Have yourself a great day.